My guest in this episode is Sashila Perestacosta. Sashila is a real leader in the field of responsible investing. She's thoughtful, considered, and very knowledgeable. And I'm sure you'll learn a lot by listening to what she has to say. I also hope that you might be able to draw encouragement and even inspiration from listening to the conversation. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sashila. How are you? I'm really well. How are you, David? I'm good, thank you. And welcome to our new recording studio. Um, I wanted to kick off by asking you a question. I, I thought I'd frame it like this. I don't think there are many kids that would start out and uh, if you asked them what they wanted to do, would say they'd like to chair um, the board of the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia and do some of the other things that you've done. So how do you have you got to where you've got to? How do you get here? <laughs> You're exactly right. I fell into um, the financial industry, actually. I started out with an arts degree. I did philosophy and linguistics and things like that. And it was through the process of coming to understand more and more about how that operated that I became more interested in um, ethical investment and responsible investment. I separately also had a real interest in sustainability. I was doing a lot of reading on the side. But it wasn't until I had my children that I realised that if I was going to go back to work and back into the finance industry, it needed, be, needed to be in a way that was going to make the world better for them. Right. So that was, there was very clear motivation there. Um, Rhea is not the only thing that you're involved in, but what what it's kind of central to the conversation today. What is Rhea about and, and tell us about its work? Yeah, it's fantastic. So Rhea began as a group of ethical investors, as advisors actually, who got together um, to be able to talk to each other about what kinds of offerings that were out there in the market for their clients. And over the 20 years or so, a little bit over 20 years that it's been in operation, it has grown to about represent about $9 trillion worth of money invested, including lots of international big firms. Its agenda has always been about spanning the breadth of those involved in responsible investment and providing the infrastructure for those needs. So right down to the individual retail investor and right up to some of the biggest financial institutions around. And it does that through a number of different, um, a number of different streams of work. It certainly advocates for responsible investor interest through policy and other things, but it, it probably the part that I'm proudest of is the way that it facilitates the industry getting together about issues and working out what they can do as an industry. And that often means different um, different parts of the industry have different roles in, in progressing an issue. It's really exciting to see that collaboration and it's very unusual for its equivalent organisations around the world. One of the, I would say, highest profile things that, that that you do in the sense that it would come across a lot of desks, certainly in, in the industry and hopefully with um, people outside the industry who'd be interested and consider themselves to be investors, um, is the reporting that you do. And you've just um, released a, another of your annual, you know, significant reports. Tell us, what, what does that report say and what does it tell investors? The report is primarily about the size and the growth and the development of the industry. And in the early days when I joined RIA, the headline thing was the FUM. So, mm. you know, we used to long for an objective when we could maybe, if we were really lucky and everything worked in our favour, we might get to 5% of the market invested responsibly. Yeah. And of course, the um, that's been wildly exceeded. It's exceeded everybody's, I can't remember what the number is, but it, it's really exceeded everybody's imaginations and ambitions. And so we've had to pivot actually to making the focus more about what is the quality of what's being done. So we still we still count, um, but we do a lot of evaluating quality as well. 
And that is done for the industry to understand what breast practice looks like, to understand where their peers are going and to help stimulate ideas about innovations they could think of. Terrific. Um, uh, as you have spoken there about the journey and the evolution in a number of different ways, it's been an evolution, hasn't it, um, in and around responsible investment. There's this simple idea that what we're doing is we're in the process of moving from one paradigm, which is the traditional risk return um, view of, um, of investment analysis to one where you add in impact so it becomes risk return and impact. And I know that um, there are a number of different ways that you can even approach that kind of thinking. But if we keep it that simple and say risk return and impact is the new paradigm, um, I think the first thing that occurs to me through my work is that not everybody will accept that and some people will be quite confronted that, c confronted by that. What is the case for responsible investment? Yeah. Well, there's a whole stream of responsible investment that is actually about nothing more than optimising risk and returns for the particular investor you're dealing with. So ESG integration in particular um, originated with big institutional investors who realised that markets were often shorter term than what their interests were solving for, what they were solving for with their portfolios. And so it was all about extending that analysis into environmental issues, into social issues, to recognise that very, very often over longer terms, those did impact risk and return and the short-term market kind of infrastructure wasn't really accommodating those interests well. So that goes just as much for, you know, retail investors, um, foundations, really anybody that has a longer-term view or a wider perspective on what they're invested in. Given what you've just laid out, why do you think so many investors, professional and, and uh, otherwise, still equate responsible investing with lower returns? I think we've done um, a poor job of explaining the different kinds of objectives that can be embodied in responsible investment um, strategies. And some of them are about um, making decisions that reflect a values-based perspective and completely agnostic about returns. So very, you know, in the in the early days of responsible investment, it was often about faith-based groups wanting to exclude a particular industry that wasn't consistent with their beliefs. And that happened regardless of the impact on risk and return. Now, I remember that a study that we did um, back in the late 90s with an organisation I was working for on, to, on the performance of an ethical strategy versus just one ethical strategy versus the conventional equivalent that that organisation still ran. And what they noticed was that in the, in the late 90s when we evaluated it, um, the ethical strategy did really, 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 really well. And as soon as the tech wreck hit, it plummeted. And that really mm. was just a feature of industry performance. The tech sector, when the tech was running in the late 90s, right up until 2001, then if you were overweight tech and underweight mining in the Australian market, you did well. Mm. But as soon as tech fell, that didn't do well. And we're seeing, you know, similar things right now with Russia where, you know, the energy implications, um, the, the fossil fuel implications of the gas, you know, the gas investments, all of those kinds of things are having an impact. But that's not really to do with ethics per se, yeah. because in a different period where different things are driving that market, it will be a better performance versus a worse performance. And that it really just depends first on the, the nature of the lens that you're um, adopting in a particular responsible investment strategy, what, what topics um, it focuses on, and then what the rest of the market is doing mm. with those industries. Now, um, 
there's a there's a kind of theme that runs through here when we when we move away from the idea of ethical investment and investing or not investing as the case may be according to your ethical values and beliefs there's a theme that runs through um in terms of the assessment of investment opportunities when we think about things like esg that essentially says esg factors um will help you assess the long-term value creation of a particular investment um again can you talk to us about that because that that's i think that's an interesting frontier for a lot of investors who have grown up thinking that responsible investment equates to compromised returns, fewer opportunities, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, interesting to then think about this in a traditionally analytical way and think about how, at least if you're a long-term investor, ESG analysis has to be fundamental to the process if you're really about long-term returns because we're saying that ESG factors help to determine and drive long-term returns. Absolutely. So if you think about the way that the, the kinds of features that you would analyze, let's say in a company, um, the shorter your term, the more narrowly financial your um, inputs can be, right? So if you're in, only interested in this quarter's returns, you might be interested in this quarter's sales and costs, for example. Um, but when you're thinking long term, you have no choice but to think about the strategic objectives of the organization and how much different levers can contribute to those strategic objectives. So all of a sudden it matters if um, your costs this quarter reflect a much lower cost base in salaries because you've shared 3,000 staff. It matters in five years' time when that loss of 3,000 staff has made its way into customer service standards and you've lost customers mm. as a result. So there are so many examples of that kind of thing where at examples down the track absolutely demonstrate that a failure to pay attention to stakeholders, to governance, um, and sometimes to environmental matters has resulted in quantifiable costs to the company um, going forward, that it's it's a fantastic um, bellwether really for the quality of management, for the level of risk within the organisation and the strategic optionality that that company will have. So we might say that anyone that calls themselves a long-term investor must have in their investment analysis process an assessment of these type of factors and this has nothing to do with values and everything to do with the assessment of value and evaluation of a business or a particular investment opportunity. Absolutely and it doesn't always spit out the same answer as a values-based assessment of exactly the same factor within that company. Yeah it, well and this is an area that um, I'm not sure where the conversation will go here, but I'm interested in because when I sat down and was preparing for, for the conversation, I um, I was reading various reports and and doing a bit of homework, and this this idea that we've just talked about um, came through very clearly. But then it made me think, and I'm, I'm really interested in your views on this. Really made me think. Well, what is more important, value or values? And what I mean by that is. Um, what is more important when you look at an investment, the creation of value or doing the right thing? And that gets back to the idea that we talked about responsible investing versus investing responsibly. So how, how should investors think about that question now that they have in their minds things like ESG analysis can help me work out whether this is going to be a good investment financially? Um, that, that doesn't touch on the other question. And that other question is a really important question so how do people think about that? I think one of the really important distinctions that 
people need to consider is the means versus the end. And there's, there's a big difference between an investment that matches your values, that is aligned to your values, and an investment that actually advances those values in the world. So that is the reason for some of these um, more rounded versions of responsible investment that have emerged, for instance, aspects of stewardship. Just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, they, there was a... Um, there was a result at Origin as a result of a bunch of individual investors who'd put forward a shareholder resolution. And that actually changed something in the world that wouldn't have happened if they had just omitted gas companies from their portfolios. Yep, I saw that. That was I, I did think that was that was reported yesterday, um, for sure. So tell us more about this idea of stewardship and mm. its role in the whole investment kind of ecosystem. Yeah, so stewardship began with institutional investors who realised that they didn't have anywhere near as much discretion as smaller investors to confine their portfolio. Um, they were just so big that in the end and over the cycle, they tended to own everything all of the time and not just equities, right? Not yep. just one country. Um, and that meant what they really had an interest in was the health of the whole economy. So stewardship is about recognising that omitting something from your portfolio might work for the risk and return of your portfolio, but the kinds of risks and returns that come from the external world, um, so whether it's climate affecting the tourism asset you're invested in, whether it's, um, you know, social unrest affecting the economic development of a particular region, that all of those things don't go away just because you sell them to someone else. Mm. And therefore, stewardship leans into the idea that as an investor, you have influence and that influence is already deployed every day by your agents in the market who might be asking the companies about this quarter's widget sales or um, how they're cutting costs next year, which markets are they expanding into. And that is not a neutral position. That's already pushing companies, even governments, to, to do certain short-term things that aren't always in the interest of a long-term outcome for investors. And so leaning into um, a, a different way of thinking about that, making sure companies hear the alternative message, they do want responsible practice. Investors do want responsible practices. They do want governments to protect human rights. They do want economic development to be you know, broad-based, all of those kinds of things. That's part of stewardship. But it's a, bro it's a broad term. And so it also includes how you how institutions, for example, are dealing with asset managers and encouraging them to prosecute these kinds of cases on their behalf. Now, um, one of the challenges as we as we look more and more at the um, the true impact of allocation of capital and use of that capital by, say, a, a company or some other investment vehicle, one of the challenges is that um, it's very easy to quantify and therefore compare financial returns because we have a dollar and a dollar, uh, you know, it's, it's such a uniform thing that it's extremely easy um, and works very, very effectively for people to make assessments of one investment versus another. Um, but when we talk about the various intangibles um, and impacts, it gets a lot harder. There are a number of ways that investors can get help with this and there are things that are starting to emerge that I think are very interesting. I'll give you one example um, that I'm sure you'll know well, the Harvard Impact Weighted Accounts Project which is there to make sure that you can create financial accounts that reflect a company's financial, social, and environmental performance. And the ambition of the project is to create accounting statements that 
transparently capture external impacts in a way that drives investor and managerial decision-making. Now, that seems something of a holy grail. Um, so that's a very ambitious project. It, you don't have to t talk specifically about that particular project, but I'm really interested in how investors are getting help and you think they will get help to work this stuff out so they can make good decisions. There are some fantastic initiatives that are focused on helping investors to do this. Um, the one that you mentioned is is focused primarily on corporates and, and their reporting. Um, there's a group called the Impact Management Project and they are working with investors to develop the kind of metrics sets that explicitly address impact. So the kinds of things you might look to measure from a company, um, for example, the gigalitres of water that were saved or... Um, particular differences in social outcomes for a, a demographic group that's been targeted by an impact strategy. Um, and participating in those kinds of forums is, um, it's not just good for the output of those forums, it's it's fantastic learning experience. And, and they're the kinds of things too that RIA looks to bring into the market. Um, there's an impact management and measurement community of practice as part of the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. It has hundreds of people attending um, in, in order to build the skills of the investment community in measuring and reporting real impact. And it gets, like I imagine in that group, you've got a lot of these people, it gets quite um, technical mm -hmm. and people can disappear into the weeds. And for some people that's very important. It sounds quite um, esoteric in some senses, but it's absolutely fundamental, isn't it, to the integrity of the whole idea of responsible investment that people... Um, lay people, if you like, um, and every investor, not just professional or institutional investors, can have faith in the assessment of impact other than the, the, the very obvious financial, immediate financial impacts. So again, how do, um, how, what can you say to reassure people that might be listening to this who might be interested in responsible investment that there will be reliable measures and um, systems in place for them to get the information that they need to know that their, their investment is indeed responsible and is, is hopefully making a positive difference in the world. Well, another plug for Ria then. There's a, <laughs> there, there's a certification I? program for investment products yep. that Ria um, operates and it's very popular and it's very strict and it um, it fails a lot of products, sends yep. them back to the drawing board and says it won't, it, it's not able to certify a product without certain criteria. And using that um, subset, the RIA subset, you're in pretty good hands as to um, which products are genuine in what they describe themselves to do with respect to responsible investment. Mm. Um, that doesn't necessarily, uh, as I described, there's a number of ways that responsible investment is implemented. So it doesn't necessarily map directly to what's in or out of the portfolio or what outcomes are happening in the world. But there are um, Organisations like RIA are trying to develop out those kinds of programs to make sure that those kinds of things can be separately um, evaluated. So to push that plug a little bit further, what you're saying is that um, a, a fairly easy and reliable way for people to work out whether something is true to label is to look at that RIA product certification yes. uh, list, list, I suppose is what it boils down yep. to, um, and have faith in the process behind it. Um, this is important because we can't probably go any further without using the, this word um, greenwashing, which mm -hmm. is everywhere at the moment. Um, can you speak to us about about your thoughts on that from your position um, at RIA and um, just tell us what's happening with greenwashing? How do you avoid it? Um, and 
you know, what mechanisms are in place to, again, protect investors against it? Well, all of the usual mechanisms that protect investors from all kinds of other things that are misleading are also in place. So there's nothing additional that's required, for example, from ASIC requirements about disclosures and so on. Um, but, I mean, the first thing to say about greenwashing is that it's sort of, um, if, if you go back 20 years, the idea that we had a problem where everyone wanted to look like they were res investing responsibly, that's a really good problem to have from the perspective of 20 years ago. Of course, it does make us a victim of our own success because we do want to be able to differentiate what's real um, in terms of responsible investment from what's largely just marketing. A lot of the greenwashing that exists in the market I don't think is necessarily um, deliberate. It's as much to do with um, the providers of products coming up the learning curve and, and grappling with it, what is a confusing area as it is um, deliberate. There certainly is deliberate stuff out there. Um, the, the best way, the third party evaluation is really, again, a really effective way to make sure you get past it. One of the, one of the interesting things, one of my high school English teachers pointed me to very early on was how much more effective a statement is in terms of its ability to be evaluated when it focuses on verbs and not nouns. So instead of labelling something responsible investment or ES sustainable or ESG integration or whatever, look at what they say they do. Mm. And that's a pretty good indicator because that's a verifiable um, statement. Yeah. that that Actually, I think I read something that you wrote recently on that, that we have to move beyond what, what something is to what something does. Um, something else I read that I think you put, put me onto on social media, one of the other papers I'm going to talk to in a minute. Um, and, and this is the idea that as we look ahead, um, ESG, for example, could be described as being finished. Now, this is the, this you'll probably know the paper I'm talking about here. I think the title was something around of the end, something like the end of ESG. Yeah. Now, the author was at pains to point out that he didn't mean that it's no longer relevant. Uh, it, he was pointing to the idea that at some point there's no such thing as ESG investing. That's just investing. I, I use that um, same type of um, description when I think about impact investing. We talk about impact. And as we said earlier on in the conversation, the logical end here is that it's just investing and this is part of how we analyse, consider and value um, investments along the way. Mm. Um, Want to say anything about that? ESG, so some strands of that will get there quicker than others. ESG integration will get there quicker than impact. Mm. And the reason for that is that ESG integration doesn't seek to deviate that much from conventional norms in investing. No trade-off. You're actually trying to optimise the risk yeah. and return yeah. through impact. Again, because it's value. It's about value, about not value. values. That's right. Whereas impact investing is explicitly taking into account the impact in the real world. And the reality is that the world that we have right now does not always reward higher impact. And so when you're trying to make those investments, what we need is to bring the world closer to recognising that real value creation should be rewarded and value extraction maybe shouldn't shouldn't earn such great returns. And that requires things like set, all sorts of settings for policymakers. A carbon price is a great example of that. If there's no particular incentive to reduce your carbon emissions, then um, you're going to go with the lowest cost. And and that, that occurs at all stages of the kind of investment value chain, if you like. So... Um, impact is going to be slower unless we 
start to work with the settings that we have for what counts as financial value. And it's a great first step that countries are starting to report welfare um, budgets and, and have targets around um, environmental and social outcomes and working out ways that those can be translated into the quantitative measures we use, things like GDP um, equivalents, that would be probably a step that we need before we're going to get fully embedded impact in investing as a normal state of affairs. Yeah, okay. Um, now, more broadly in, in respect to the development of responsible investing taken as a whole, um, what do you expect? Where's it going? You've seen extraordinary growth and attention, but also massive development in terms of um, assessment processes and the kind of things we've talked about today. Yeah. And I feel like we are on this journey towards um, all of the kind of considerations, the broader considerations over, over the broad traditional risk of term being assimilated into um, uh, professional assessment of, of investments to the point where um, all professional investment decisions will take into account a much broader range of impacts than is currently the case even today. But how do you see it? What, what should we expect in the development of responsible investment within the overall investing um, industry, let's call it? I think we're going to see a much more proactive um, set of activities from asset managers. So those professional investors making professional investment decisions currently in many cases need to rely on third-party research um, sources. And those research sources are doing the difficult job of trying to meet the needs of lots of, of investors with lots of different objectives, some who have a value objective, some who have a values objective, as we have just talked about. Mm. Um, and those objectives can be different, as we've also talked about, between if you expect to hold a stock for three months versus if you yeah. expect to hold all stocks in perpetuity. And so I think what we're going to see is a much more proactive approach from those making those decisions in commissioning the research that they need in commissioning answers to the kinds of questions they think are going to be relevant. And I look forward to that level of engagement because I think it's going to help the the level and the quality right across the board. Yeah. And I, um, as I'm hearing you say that, I'm thinking about the coder experience and we have, um, we have uh, research capabilities that sit outside the firm that help us, particularly in the area of impact investing. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is how does the integration process work, um, and and you know it's it's it, you know it's something that'll play out over time. But I see that happening at uh, other organisations around the market. I think there'll be more and more of that. Um, and one day I hope that there's full integration. And as I say, that this is just how things are done. So how long do you think it'll take us to get to the to the to the point? It's probably an unfair question. I was actually going to ask you, but maybe I'll ask you an easy one, which is 10, five, 10, 20 years out from now, um, where do you think we'll be? I would like to think that it is completely integrated by then. Um, that said, it was 15 years ago that I was expecting that we might be quite a lot closer to it today. Jed, Jed Emerson, um, very well-known impact investment circles. Um, we, I did a report when I was work, working um, for JB Weir and it was called Impact Australia. And we, we kind of co-produced it with um, a government agency that was called DWAR at the time, Rose, Rosemary Addis, it was, that we did it with. It's now obviously gone on to many, many other things in the impact space. Um, and when we launched that report back in 2013, I think it was, um, we had Jed come out to help us launch it. And I remember Jed basically 
a number of times talking to people at various events we held saying, I've been doing this for 20 years, guys. I've been doing this in its West Coast drawl. I've been doing this 20 years. In other words, you've got a long road ahead of you and you've got to be patient. But then, um, you know, it's coming, isn't it? So it may be a long time uh, or happen over a long period of time. But I think it. I think there's almost no doubt that it is it is happening and it's probably not going to reverse. It's, you know, we're on that path. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with the one rider that now is the time we really need to be vigilant to make sure that the paths we are creating for that are really delivering the outcomes that we hope that they would. Um, it's it's um, a fantastic position that professional investors are in that they are able to demonstrate demand to the providers who are really doing this well um, and making sure that there isn't the same kind of demand for greenwash um, approaches. And that's what's going to allow the good approaches to flourish and become embedded and be successful. Um, it's a bit of Darwinism, if you like, <laughs> for, yeah. for the industry itself. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. Now, to, to turn the attention back to you a bit, because the, the, the emphasis on these conversations is on the guest and um, I'm always inviting people that um, have a very strong sense of purpose in their work as well as their, their life outside work um, to come in and have a chat. So um, so, so looking at you, you've been on this um, journey. I, I would think it's a very interesting journey because this work appeals to me personally. Um, but what have you learned along the way as, as you've gone on this journey? What are your own reflections? There are always allies in unexpected places and... It's very easy for a lot of the topics in ESG to become polarising, but you learn a lot more by talking to the people that disagree with you um, because in the end what we're trying to do is support change in a system and understanding the obstacles to that change now is really the only way forward. It's the only way you can formulate solutions to those things. So, you know, 15 years ago, for example, fund managers would say, well, the information's just not there. And, of course, a whole whole industry's grown up around providing that information now. So we need to be quite alert to what we're solving for. Again, all verbs. Um, yeah. But I think that's very insightful, the idea that you need to listen to um, the dissenting voices, the non-believers, um, and, and, and that is then how you can build um, a system with integrity mm. that serves the purpose that it needs to serve in order to reach those people. Otherwise, it's a, a you know, you're preaching to the converted and you and you just can't build out from there really easily, can you? Um, I'd, I'd add another experience from mine. Now, as, as you were talking, I thought one of my reflections is um, that often, and I'm thinking about this and sometimes in the philanthropy context and I think about it in terms of responsible and impact investment, um, it's the idea of the smoker who gives up smoking and all of a sudden becomes, you know, the biggest voice in the room, anti-smoking. I, I know it's with philanthropy, and I'm seeing it again now with responsible investment, that um, professional investors and advisors that maybe were a little bit um, dubious about the whole thing come to the point, and it doesn't happen overnight, but come to the point invariably where then they are presenting themselves as specialists in this field and responsible investment advice is a really important part of my work. I hope we get there because I saw that with philanthropy, people that thought it wasn't my job to talk to clients and advise them about giving money away. Um, are now, if you look at their bios all over Australia, describing themselves as philanthropic advisors, advisors to philanthropic foundations and nonprofits. 
So I, I think we'll, we, I, one of my predictions is that we'll see an army of people who might not have that much of a voice in, in this conversation right now joining the conversation and ultimately becoming people who um, are proud to and, and talk talk quite openly about advising clients how to respect how to invest in, in a responsible manner and how that, that actually might work for them in a values and a value sense so um let's see how it plans out what do you think i think that's brilliant i've some of the people that i have learnt the most from and that have shaped my thinking about responsible investment practice the most have been dissenters that i was forced to engage with and i like to think that i might have had a bit of influence on them too mm. um but it is true that wrestling with the difficulties gets you a lot further than a kind of more superficial engagement with the, um, you know, the optimism. I couldn't agree more. I mean, if an idea, one of my beliefs is an idea is good enough, it has to stand up to that type of scrutiny. And uh, by putting up for that kind of scrutiny, often you get the feedback you need to realise it needs to be modified and improved. And um, so, that, so yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, um, so to finish off... Um, I'm interested, two, two final questions. You've got a career with purpose. What difference has, a, has, has a, having a career that involves purpose and involves purpose on a day-to-day -day basis made to you? Um, it has meant that I have loved my work the majority of the time. I have friends who aren't as in, in, in as fortunate positions in terms of the, the fit between their life purpose and their their work. And so it's really apparent to me that, that that's such a benefit. It's such a wonderful thing, a gift really. Um, the other thing is that it has made me quite, um, opinionated about saying no to things. And really? I, uh, so, so things that don't fit the purpose, things that are the right flavor, but don't actually deliver on the purpose. Mm. I can be quite, um, confident in my decision not to go there. Mm. Yeah. I um, I think we should talk about your career, not that it's approaching the end, hopefully. <laughs> Let's see you around for a long time. But in terms of legacy, what do you think um, you'd like as a legacy for the work that you've done? I'd love it if the responsible investment industry as a whole um, was delivering more on impact in the world Um as a result of, of things that I've contributed. Yeah. To, to bet again, I, I had this idea when I came to him, but bending the kind of the arc, bending you know, the it's, arc, it's, yeah. uh, it's quite a grand way to say it, but it's really, that's what I think if you're, if you have a role with purpose, like you do, that's what you're engaged in, isn't it? In the, in, in the, in the big picture sense, yeah. not the day to day sense. Well, yeah. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've done that. Hopefully this conversation will be heard by people that, um, will be quite engaged by it. And, um, um, and may wish to think about their work in a different way as a result. Again, that's what we're, what we're really trying to do here. So thank you very much for coming in and, and um, talking about it. It's been very interesting, this whole idea of value and values. Very interesting conversation. The whole idea of the, the whole movement and its evolution, I think, is is fascinating. And it's going to be really interesting to see over the next few years what I expect will be quite rapid change and, I, uh, and maybe not change at the pace that you would like, but I think you, you probably agree that we're heading, heading in a very positive direction. There are many more of us now with much more momentum. Yeah, just a final comment. Before I, we came into the room, I had a, a coffee with someone who's just left um, uh, a wealth investment um, firm and is about to move into the um, 
impact space, I suppose, <clears throat> with an impact manager. And um, her face, you know, she was lit up. Um, she said, I've been looking. I haven't really kind of known what I wanted to do. I've just done roles for the sake of it and I've been successful and it's great. But now I'm going to do something with real purpose. And it feels like I finally kind of found what I should be doing. And she's super excited to learn and contribute and, and hopefully make a difference. So uh, those kind of, we reflected on the fact that those kind of people were, and those opportunities were, were, were a lot rarer than they are today. And we're seeing more and more, which again, uh, I think is fantastic. I think there's big appetite for people to take on those kind of roles. So let's hope that group gets bigger and bigger, hey? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank Thanks you very so much. much for having me, David. No, it's been, it's been great and uh, much appreciated. Thank you. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.